0: All right. I'm not sure what happened there. I hope uh, I'm still able to be heard. I know it indicated that the said that the call in room has ended, um, but it's still showing that um, the room is ongoing and hopefully I can be heard. I have a couple of people monitoring who should tell me shortly uh, whether or not it's working. Um, so I will just kind of stutter and stall for just a few minutes in case I, I can be heard. Um, in the hope that I can. Yes, I have no confirmation that I'm working. So um, I'm going to try and make sure uh, I can fix the technical parts of it. Uh, but at least you can hear me, which is an important start. So I'm excited to be back in, in this room. As I said, I've been uh, very faithful about uh, about uh, doing our, our weekly show that I co-host with Q Anthony, a little bit less disciplined about doing what I want to be our weekly shows here and and this is an attempt uh to sort of rejuvenate that process and recommit to a weekly show and I think the only way it works is to pick a time and a date uh and an hour that actually works um where every week you'll know that our show starts at that date and time that's what we've been doing with the other uh, podcast it's been growing a lot so hopefully I'll pick a date soon and, and we can do that. So as the room title indicates, um, there's a pretty interesting and potentially very consequential news event uh, that has been unfolding over the course of the last couple of weeks that exploded to an entirely new level within the last 24 hours. And I'm talking, of course, about the various machinations of the world's richest man, Elon Musk, and his obvious intention to... Influence in some way the various policies of Twitter, some of which he's been very vocal uh, about in terms of denouncing. And I think we have to, just to summarize, uh, about 10 days ago, it was announced that uh, he had purchased something like almost 10% of, of Twitter. I think it has a value of, of somewhere like $3 billion. Uh, he instantly became the largest shareholder of Twitter, which obviously gives him a significant voice in the policies and operation of the country of the company, although not a controlling voice. It's still just 10 percent. And they invited him onto the board of Twitter, offered him a seat on the board of Twitter, which he accepted. And the hope or the idea, at least, was that he would be able to influence Twitter policy policy with that seat on the board. Um I think the problem uh, came, well, there were a couple of problems. One is that under SEC rules, as well as an agreement that he reached with Twitter in exchange for that board seat, he was essentially limited in the sense that he was not permitted to purchase more than, I believe it's 14.9% of the company, which would forever prohibit him from exercising majority control. So we could certainly be influential. But in no way dispositive when it comes to changing various Twitter policies that he finds objectionable. The company, at the time they announced his joining of the board, was very quick to point out that when you join the board of a public corporation, you have fiduciary duties to the shareholders to maximize their value, which implicitly means, at least in what Twitter executives were trying to imply, that that would prevent Elon Musk as a board member from doing things like harshly maligning Twitter. That's not something that if you believe a board member has fiduciary duties to the shareholders to maximize their value, you ought to be doing publicly maligning that same company. And so we don't have a lot of transparency into what Elon Musk is thinking. A lot of it is speculation and guessing, but it seems pretty clear that once it became evident that Twitter viewed his joining of the board as a way of constraining his public critiques almost co-opting him into the company he had a change of heart and decided maybe joining the board of Twitter isn't actually what I want to do and in fact he ultimately rejected that that offer said I'm not going to join the board of Twitter and then within the last uh, 12 hours or so we learned that he has made an offer to buy all of the stock of Twitter at a fairly substantial premium. I don't know exactly what the price is, but let's assume that the current price of of Twitter stock is $43 a share. I believe his offer was something like $54 or $55, which means there's a significant premium if you're a substantial shareholder of Twitter and your value is currently worth $43 a share, and now you have the opportunity to sell it to Elon Musk at $55 a share, that is a very significant value that you will gain if the board accepts his offer to buy Twitter outright. And just as Twitter's executives were saying, there is a fiduciary duty on the part of the board of directors to serve the interests of Twitter shareholders, which... If you follow it to its logical conclusion, not just when it comes time to try and silence Elon Musk's public criticism of Twitter, but when it comes time for the board members to decide whether to accept Elon Musk's generous offer to buy all Twitter shares at a premium price, you could certainly make the argument, as I'm certain he and his lawyers and many other people will, that it doesn't matter whether the Twitter board of directors, likes what he intends to do with Twitter, likes what Elon Musk wants to do, that instead their only obligation is to do its best for Twitter shareholders, which means getting the greatest value for Twitter shares as they can. And it's hard to argue that rejecting Elon Musk's offer is consistent with, with, with what they themselves described as... The fiduciary duty that they have to maximize the value of shareholders. That's obviously what he's counting on. Now, all that said, I think what you're seeing is on one side of the reaction, the public reaction to this news, an obvious excitement on the part of people, certainly includes myself, who believes that not just social media, but the internet itself in many ways has lost what was supposed to be one of its primary promises, if not its primary promise, which was the idea that the internet was the thing that was going to liberate us from centralized state and corporate control. In order to communicate with one another, in order for information to be distributed, we were no longer going to need to have a huge television network like ABC News or CBS News or CNN in order to organize and disseminate information. We weren't going to need a printing press like the New York Times. It was going to be a instrument of egalitarianism. It was going to liberate us from this centralized control. It was going to be a zone of freedom where corporations and states couldn't control what we said, what we thought, what information we accessed, what information we disseminated. If you go and read The literature about people who were excited by the advent of the internet in the mid-90s and the early aughts, that was the promise that it offered. And maybe it was a little bit triumphalist and maybe it was a little bit optimistic, but that was certainly what made this innovation so exciting. If all it was going to do is be yet another more potent technological instrument to enable ruling class power centers to monitor and surveil and control us even more, it wouldn't have been an exciting innovation. It would have been an alarming one. So that was always the idea. And I think if you go and look at what early Silicon Valley pioneers were saying at the time, and there's a tweet from Jack Dorsey in 2015, not very distant history, where he said something like, Twitter is about liberating us from the constraints of censorship and empowering us to Engage in the values of free speech and free thought and free inquiry, it's hard to reconcile that vision with the reality of what we now have. Especially over the course of the last six years, I think you can trace it like you can with so many uh, disturbing changes to the election of Donald Trump and the accompanying uh, enactment of Brexit in the UK the rise of populist leaders in various places, like in Brazil and Western Europe, where people thought they would never emerge, this kind of panic on the part of neoliberal elites, where they started to turn to increasingly repressive measures based on the view that the threats that were posed to their hegemony were sufficiently grave, that authoritarian solutions were not just just, but necessary, certainly including censorship, the idea that we can't allow the internet to be a venue for free discourse and free thought, because look what happens. We elect Donald Trump. We elect Jair Bolsonaro. The British get to decide to leave the EU. All sorts of bad things happen. And what we've seen over the last five or six years is one self-proclaimed crisis after the next, that each was used to exploit to condition populations to accept greater and greater degrees of censorship in using the very, the the kind of cliche tactic of the frog in the boiling water where you put the frog in the water, you turn the heat up a little bit, as long as you turn it up gradually enough, but inexorably continuously, but gradually it gets to the point where it becomes fatal, but the frog doesn't realize that the heat has been turned up to fatal amounts because it's been done by degrees. And each time you do it and the frog accepts it, it becomes the new normal. That's clearly what's happened. You start with Russiagate and the idea that the Russians and Russian bots had subverted our democracy and we needed more aggressive control over the Internet. That was one of the first arguments invoked to justify greater control over Internet speech. And then it became just the Trump movement in general, I think the first real cases of Silicon Valley uniting to just de-platform and deperson people was in 2018 when they first did it to Alex Jones and and simultaneously to Miley Yiannopoulos, people who at the time were among the most powerful and influential voices within what became described as the alt-right or pro-Trump movement. They were just disappeared from the internet in a way that at the time, a lot of people warned, including people like Peter Thiel who was on the board of Facebook but lots of others that that framework that had been created and that didn't provoke very much objection or opposition because it was aimed at people widely disliked like Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos was a very dangerous framework because it would inevitably be used for more and more people further away from the fringes and closer and closer to the mainstream so you had the election of Trump and Russia gate and then you had the COVID pandemic. And I think because of the war in Ukraine, a lot of us have forgotten how much censorship was tolerated and applauded in the name of that pandemic very early on. It was almost instantly decreed, explicitly decreed that any deviation from the consensus formed by Dr. Fauci and the World Health Organization was deemed not just disinformation, but dangerous disinformation that could not be tolerated. People who questioned the efficacy of cloth masks were routinely banned from the internet, even though it was Fauci himself and the World Health Organization itself early on that told people not to wear masks. Once they changed their mind and told everyone to wear masks, questioning the efficacy of cloth masks became prohibited. Questioning lockdowns and quarantines and the need for it obviously was prohibited. Questioning the vaccine became instant grounds for banishment, even or maybe even especially trying to interrogate the origin, the genesis of. From. A lab leak, it, it was explicitly adopted as a policy by Facebook and Google that that was simply prohibited. And it was only once the US government itself, played. perhaps, there is evidence to suggest that Facebook reversed itself and said we're now going to allow questioning question a virology lab or somewhere else about the very restricted and controlled and what we were allowed to question a series of imposition uh, a pathogen that's scientists themselves acknowledged they had a difficult time understanding the virus could not to allow any questioning of or deviation from debates were most urgent and yet instead conditioned the of public health authorities because doing so that same dynamic was imposed in the wake of the January 6 riot, or two events happened that were unbelievably extreme, one being that the social media app that became the single most popular app in the United States, the most downloaded app on both the Apple and Google stores parlor, got destroyed overnight because democratic that democratic politicians demanded. I think I'm cutting out a little, so let me see if I can. uh. So Democratic politicians demanded that Apple and Google uh, remove Parler from their stores and Parler within 48 hours was destroyed after Google and Apple complied and then Amazon did as well by removing them from the uh, server. And then the sitting president of the United States, The elected sitting president of the United States was banished from the most significant social media platforms when unelected Silicon Valley executives united in order to remove him. A act of brute censorship so extreme that even people highly antagonistic to Donald Trump, like German Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Emmanuel Macron, the president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador all came out and said, it's extremely disturbing, a grave threat to democracy, that tech executives have the power to remove even elected leaders of major democratic countries because it shows their power resides outside of and above world democracies. So things that were unthinkable, unthinkable five years ago are now completely commonplace because we've been conditioned to accept them and the war in Ukraine, whatever your views are on that, on it. And I know people have passionately held views on every conceivable place in the spectrum, just whatever your views are. The reality is that this war has ushered in a level and magnitude and intensity of a censorship regime unprecedented in the West. Unprecedented in the West. The EU, 27 nations composing the EU, ordered the banishment of RT and Sputnik, the outlets that gave the other side of the story, the Russian side, which you should be very skeptical of because it's state TV, but still should want to hear the other side of the story so you can decide for yourself. The EU ordered all Private parties, including social media companies, to ban those agencies from their platform. And then those social media companies voluntarily ban them on their own worldwide. Any questioning of NATO orthodoxy about Ukraine, any challenging of the pronouncement of Ukrainian officials, any attempt to interrogate the orthodoxy and prevailing narrative of the West when it comes to the war, how it started how it can be resolved, who's to blame, what's true, what's not true. Virtually no dissent is permitted. Virtually no dissent. Any pockets of dissent disappear on a virtually daily basis. And after things like the election of Trump and Russiagate and January 6 and COVID and now this war, this all seems normal. So this innovation that was so exciting and powerful because it promised empowerment of the individual has done exactly the opposite. That for me was always the story of of the Snowden revelations, was that what the Snowden revelations demonstrated was that this innovation that was supposed to be an unprecedented tool of liberation and democratization instead had been degraded into the most potent tool of coercion and surveillance and monitoring and therefore control ever known in human history. That to me is what has happened in the last five or six years. There is, there is no greater instrument or weapon of information control that I can conceive of than what social media has been degraded into as a result of the state and corporate imposed regime of censorship that now happens not occasionally or periodically, but continuously in almost every major public debate. So that's the framework for the news that Elon Musk might... Be interested in controlling Twitter in order to restore at least some semblance of free speech, if not the full framework. And obviously people who have the view that I just laid out are hopeful that that will happen. What's extremely interesting is how many people are petrified that that will happen. And you can see this like mass panic, this hysteria, this unhinged Alarm on the part of journalistic and political elites, Western liberals in, in 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 the halls of of power, petrified about Elon Musk's control of Twitter. I could understand people being petrified if the world's richest man was trying to take control of a social media outlet because he wanted to censor the flow of information. That would be scary. They're scared of the opposite. The status quo has that. The status quo has oligarchs and billionaires who work closely with the state, with Western nations, with NATO members, with the United States government and the security state, controlling and censoring the flow of information. They want that status quo to remain. What they're afraid of is that Elon Musk will come in and not impose a regime of censorship, but will undo it, will undermine it, will restore the values of free inquiry and free discourse and free speech that we always understood until very recently as the hallmarks of a free and democratic society. Somehow history has been completely inverted in liberal discourse. Free speech is now considered a hallmark of fascism and censorship is considered the guarantor of freedom. It's the most Orwellian inversion I've seen since reading actual Orwellian novels, George Orwell's novels. I mean, it's on the level of war is peace. You can't think of something more twisted, more surreal, more warped than the idea that censorship is the weapon of Democrats and free speech is the weapon of fascists when all of history teaches exactly the opposite. There is not one despot or authoritarian or tyrant or fascist in history who did not rely on censorship as a primary weapon. The whole foundation of our republic, of Western political philosophy since the Enlightenment, is that free speech and free inquiry, the ability to think for ourselves, to access whatever information we want, free of institutionalized, centralized control, whether by the state or corporations or the church or anybody else, is the hallmark to an enlightened society. This has been completely reversed. In Brazil, it's explicit. In Brazil, if you talk about free speech, just that phrase itself is regarded as almost a fascist battle cry. In the U.S. and and Western countries, there's still a little bit more timidity about it. We've been inculcated enough to, to know reflexively that censorship is supposed to be Something we oppose. So nobody wants to come out and say, "I advocate censorship. I'm a censor. I'm in favor of state and corporate censorship." No one wants to say that. So all that they've done is they just have adopted a euphemism for censorship. It's called content moderation. So it's fine to say, "I'm in favor of content moderation," but what that really means is I'm am I'm, I'm I'm in favor of censorship. It's just a uh, it's it's like the euphemism, enhanced interrogation techniques. Nobody in 2002 or 2005 wanted to come out and say, I favor torture. Torture is something we were always taught. We were supposed to be against. No one wanted to say, I believe in torture. So you just adopt the euphemism for it, enhanced interrogation techniques, and you make it acceptable to advocate it. That's all that's happened here. That's what content moderation means. It's just a more pleasant, polite term for... Censorship, and so you see people explicitly advocating censorship, albeit under that euphemism. Now, I have skepticism about whether Elon Musk will really, A, take over Twitter, and B, if he does take over Twitter, uh, restore a framework of free speech. Part of that skepticism is just about Elon Musk himself. He's a very mercurial, Person. He clearly enjoys using his wealth to troll, to generate attention, to upset orthodoxies, none of which, by the way, I think are bad things. I can think of a lot worse ways to use one's wealth than to poke it at pieties and make ruling centers afraid. I mean, even if that's all he's doing, there's still some value to it. I hope he intends to actually follow through, but I think there's a good chance being who he is, that he won't. I think even if he intends to, even if it's not just him trolling or kind of inventing a sort of impulse to amuse himself without intending to really carry it through as a cause, there's reason, even if he wants to, there's reasons to think it won't happen. In part because I don't really see Elon Musk as a revolutionary He seems to work very well with the U.S. security state. His companies have a very close relationship with the U.S. government and always has. He's not somebody who's been at war with the CIA or seems particularly antagonistic to the Pentagon. I don't really see him viewing uh, the ability to wrestle these these social media companies away from the influence of those kinds of powerful entities as something that he believes in is a genuine cause. So I I have skepticism about his intentions. But I also, let's assume the best about him, that he's serious about this, that it's a cause for him, that he wants to follow through on it. And that even though his cause may not be antagonism toward the security state, his cause is concerns about the dangers of systemic censorship and the elimination of free speech on the internet, and that he really does intend to take over Twitter and use that control to restore free speech. Given how important of a tool censorship regimes and information control has become on these largest and most influential platforms like Facebook, Google, and Twitter, to major power centers all over the world, including the Pentagon, There was just an article today by one of the few good journalists at The Intercept, Sam Biddle, about how every time Facebook institutes new quote-unquote content moderation, it always aligns with U.S. foreign policy. We saw that right from the beginning of the the war in Ukraine. Facebook always had a rule against praising and glorifying groups associated with neo-Nazism, and yet because the Azov battalion was such an important part of the Ukrainian fighting force and people needed to be able to praise it. They waived that rule. And now you can, there is one group associated with neo-Nazism that you're permitted on Facebook and now on YouTube to praise. And that's a group that happens to be important to the U S proxy war in Ukraine each and, 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 and the prohibition on disinformation in this war has been completely one-sided. There's an endless number of examples of outright disinformation, propaganda, and lies that have served the Ukrainian cause, which makes sense. All sides in war use propaganda and disinformation. All sides do. And none of that disinformation, as long as it serves the Ukrainian cause, which is the U.S.-NATO cause, is being censored or sanctioned in any way by major media companies, by major social media companies, anything that serves the Russian cause, whether true or not, that's what ends up getting banned. So you see how important these platforms are to these power centers. So if Elon Musk is really serious about wrestling control of information out of the hands of these major Western power centers that they have commandeered through these social media companies, even though he's the richest person in the world, he's going to face a gigantic storm and backlash. He's not just going to waltz into Twitter, take it over and rejuvenate it as a free speech platform without major, major obstacles and other kinds of reprisals from the power centers that so centrally depend upon the use of these platforms for... Uh, for information control. So I think there's multiple reasons to doubt or question what his intentions are, whether if his intentions are good, he will actually follow through, and whether if he follows through, he will still succeed. But even if it's just a kind of game for him that he'll lose interest in in a week, the reaction has become extremely edifying, extremely illuminating. It shows you how central, how crucial censorship, online censorship and censorship in general has become to Western elites. The fact that nothing has made them panic and engage in public displays of distress more than the mere possibility that there may be some movement toward free speech on one of the most important social media platforms demonstrates to you how much, how extreme this control of information is. What a closed system of propaganda in which we live as, a West, as Westerners unless we purposely seek out alternative information which is increasingly difficult to find. It shows you how central of an instrument and weapon it is to them that they are reacting in such an extreme way to the mere possibility that free speech might thrive. It, it tells you an enormous amount. Now I wanted to um, briefly touch on this uh, other topic, which I have been trying very hard to avoid and I'm going to just kind of stick my toe in um, very briefly just because I have been witnessing it and watching it and um, have a couple of things to, to say. And this is a good platform to sort of workshop how to talk about it Um It's designed to be interactive. Um, I'm going to talk about it briefly because I do want to leave as much time as possible for people in the queue. There are already 30 people in the queue. So I don't want to take up all the time just in a monologue. I want to get to as many uh, questions as, as possible from the audience because that's one of my favorite things about this platform. And that is the debate that has erupted over attempts to limit what, can be taught to particularly young children in schools about gender identity and sexual orientation and the accompanying tactic of using the term groomer for anybody who resists any of the efforts to restrict what children can be taught, a word that traditionally has uh, been used for adults who inappropriately intend to sexualize children for their own pleasure. It's a very harsh and heavy accusation to levy at somebody because of what it implies about their, their intentions. So I just want to talk about a couple of uh, aspects of this debate that come from my own perspective. Um, and by my own perspective, I guess I mean as a gay man who has been involved in debates of this kind for a long time, but also as a father of two children, one of whom is just reaching adolescence, the other one uh, who will in, 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 a, in a couple of years. Um, first of all, let me just say that these debates are not new. Like so many debates, they seem new, but they're not. I remember when I lived in New York in the mid 90s and the early 90s when I was going to law school at NYU, one of the big controversies was over the fact that the public school system at I think the fourth and fifth grade levels started to introduce books with titles like Heather Has Two Mommies that were designed to explain to students that the model with which they were most familiar, the family model with which they were most familiar of having a father and a mother was not everyone's experience, that some of their classmates have two mothers or have two fathers. And just to get people, children, accustomed to the idea that that should not be a source of condemnation or bullying to let them understand why that is. There was nothing sexualized about it. It was more designed to get people to understand that there are different experiences than the ones they were accustomed to seeing in the media, different kinds of parent, parental situations, different kinds of families. The same debate broke out on the one side, people saying you're trying to sexualize children by teaching them about homosexuality. The other side said, no, we're just trying to get kids to understand the realities of the world in the very kind of age-appropriate way. So these debates have been going on forever. And I think my view has changed a lot since I've become a parent, which I think is very common. Probably back then, my, my attitude was, Kids should be taught about social realities. And it is a reality that some kids have a mother and a father. Some have two fathers. Some have two mothers. Some have single parents. Some are adopted. Some live with their biological parents. And given that kids judge each other and understand each other's families, there's no reason to just leave them in the dark about these basic realities of family structures. Why shouldn't they be taught about it? Since I've had kids, my view has somewhat changed in the sense that I now feel like when I send my kids to school, and I especially felt like this when my kids were younger, I feel less this now that they're getting older and have a greater capacity to critically evaluate what they're hearing from their peers and from teachers and from the culture and teaching them how to critically think is one of at least my top objectives, my parenting objectives. But obviously when they're younger and less able to do that or more defenseless to whatever they're hearing from authority figures. My idea always was I'm sending my kids to school for very simple and narrow reasons, which is to make sure that they learn Portuguese and English and math and science and biology and chemistry and geography and history and not be inculcated with social and political values of their teachers, that was our role, to talk to them about that. And when they would come home and tell me about things that they discussed in school that were outside of those traditional topics, I found myself as a parent disturbed and bothered that my someone was talking to my children about things that I wasn't sending them to school for without my permission. So I think the experience of being a parent has given me a lot of empathy into the idea that people want to send their kids to school without having them socially and politically indoctrinated. On the other hand, I think that um oftentimes there's a failure to understand some of the nuances of how certain things are discussed. So I remember the debates from the 1990s and the like when the idea was not that before there was gay marriage and the like, the idea was like, if you were gay, you shouldn't be attacked for it. You shouldn't be villainized. You shouldn't be demonized but you kind of should just keep it to yourself. It's nobody's business who you sleep with. It's nobody's business who you're attracted to. Why does anybody need to know? And I always found that so kind of misguided because I know for myself, when I went to school, I knew if my teacher had children, I knew they would refer to their wife or their husband and what their wife and their husband did. I think there were times even parent-teacher conferences when they would invite their their spouses to school and you would know that your female teacher was married to a man. And so if you have a gay teacher and they talk in very simple and benign ways about their own life, and they don't say my wife and I went to Disney world with our two kids, but say my husband and I did, it's very hard for me to agree that something inappropriate has been said. That seems very benign to me. And I think this, use of the word groomer as a way of implying that anybody who doesn't instantly capitulate to the full and absolute demand that no discussion of any kind about political and social issues is permitted in schools must have as their motive the desire to sexualize children for their own pleasure, in other words, essentially that they're pedophiles, is extremely inflammatory and even dangerous rhetoric that has no real basis in reality. It seems designed very much to exploit and play on what I know now as a parent are extremely potent instincts to protect your children from other adults who may want to sexualize them. And it seems like a very dishonest and dangerous way of of trying to conduct what ought to be a nuanced and sensitive and careful debate about what children should not shouldn't be taught in schools. So I don't really have a lot more I want to say about that um, other than those broad impressions. Um, I think the debate has kind of gone in an ugly direction, and that's because it's taking place over social media. And I can think of few topics less conducive to careful consideration on social media than what children should be taught in schools and what is the reasonable extent to which they should be introduced to to topics of gender and sexual identity and at what age than social media. So I think that's uh, been part of the problem, but I felt at some point compelled to just kind of share some preliminary thoughts on the contours of that debate. So with that, I will end it there. I unfortunately have no doubt that I will have to return to that latter topic at some point. I assume and hope that most people are interested in the issue of Elon Musk and the question of online uh, free speech and censorship. So, but whatever you want to ask about either of those topics or anything else is that on your mind, feel free to do it and we can have a discussion about it. Uh, the first person who is up is Johnny. When I call your name, just go ahead and unmute yourself by clicking the microphone icon that's at the bottom of your screen. Go ahead, Johnny.
1: Uh, I got it. <clears throat> Okay. So, um, you know, as you're talking about this whole groomer thing, and if we have time, I would love to talk about some other stuff, but this just really came up strongly with what you're saying is, you know, do you think this groomer discussion is running under the paradigm that you're going to turn kids gay by saying one thing or yeah, another?
0: I, yeah. I th- well, I think the intended implication of that word is to imply strongly that people who want to teach children about issues of gender identity or sexual orientation don't just have a different view about what appropriate education is, but instead have pernicious motives that they're trying to recruit children to become trans or to become gay so that the teacher can then have sexual relations with them or otherwise just kind of convert them. And that's what I find so bothersome about it, is that it just seems like the worst possible way of characterizing your opponents in the debate.
1: Well, for sure. I mean, especially if it's running under the paradigm that you have a belief that an adult is going to turn a kid gay or trans. I mean, the whole idea is that we're trying to, like, open it up for more inclusivity because we know that these things happen and maybe at a larger rate than we previously presumed, but it doesn't happen because people are exposed to it. The fact is people are more able to express that they fit into these groups because they're not getting dragged by, behind trucks and beaten up for their views. So it, it it just seems so confusing to me that, like, on one side, the whole thing is trying to be more inclusive and protecting these children from ideas that are going to turn them gay. I mean, wasn't that an idea 50 years ago that we've kind of, like, shooken off? And it, it's Yeah, so, you
0: know, I, I, so, so let me just draw, like, a, a distinction here, which is... I think you're right that the idea was kind of finally regarded as absurd because it it made sense when people didn't know very many gay people. And so there was an assumption that at some point the reason you became gay is because some adult poorly influenced you or you made kind of choice to change identities or sexual. And I think the more people came to know gay people, the more they understood that it's just as ridiculous to believe that someone, a kid got convinced to be gay or chose to be gay as it is to believe that there was a moment when a straight kid got convinced to be straight or chose to be straight. We all have our own experience the conviction that sexual orientation is embedded within us and whether it's inborn or just becomes defined at a very young age, that it's immutable, that we can't be convinced or talked out of it or influenced out of it. I do think there's a question about whether gender identity is more fluid and malleable and subjective and then and therefore perhaps more subject to being influenced by encouragement by you know maybe you shouldn't identify as only a boy or a girl and you can be taught to think that you're either or both or neither i don't think we have enough study on that question. And I think one of the problems is that studying that question or asking that question has almost become taboo. I'm open to the idea that more influence is possible when it comes to gender identity than sexual orientation. But I think in all cases, we have to be extremely careful. You know, if you're somebody who wants to make sure that these questions can be openly debated and aren't the subject of repressive speech restrictions as I am, you also have a responsibility not to try and devise tactics that make everybody petrified of expressing a view different than yours because they're going to be labeled a pedophile. And that's essentially my motive in weighing in on this.
1: Okay, and if we can pivot real quick, I know that there's a lot of people in the queue, and I'm going to be quick with this, but um, did you happen to catch CNN's masterclass on disinformation?
0: Um. I did not. I I I mean, CNN, you know, factoring on disinformation is like Zanamu Singh giving a class on human rights. But what
1: did they do? So there's a few clips um, on breaking points and other places of college freshmen who were attending a disinformation class given by CNN, the protectors of free speech and real information. And there was two college freshmen who asked uh, Brian Stelter and then somebody else who works there well, you say that you guys are fighting against this information, but here are three very solid ways in which you've spread disinformation. How do you reconcile that? And one of the women, they were like, well, it's time for lunch. And Brian Stelter, you know, did the Kamala Harris talk about nothing for two minutes. And it's interesting Actually, I because- I
0: think they were both Brian Stelter. And unsurprisingly, it was Brian Stelter who said it's time for lunch.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right. So, um, so you know, if there's college freshmen and then there's, what, 775 people on this call, um, it, the relevance of whether or not Elon Musk owns Twitter and he's going to, like, save the world from censorship, isn't it – I mean, it, it, it's kind of a null point because Twitter is just as susceptible. I mean, if the president could be have his account suspended, then the president of Twitter could have his account suspended as well. And so uh, it seems to me, and I'd like for you to weigh in on this, I don't know if you have a Twitter account or an Instagram account, but I see you on call in and I really appreciate it because I'm not on other social media platforms. And so, you know, as, as much as I like to debate people and to be in contact with them, I feel like I would have to engage In something that I don't find very productive. So would you say that, you know, if you're already on social media, it would be productive to debate and to share information that might be true, even though it gets censored occasionally, or would the stronger pull to just get towards new media to get towards rumble to get towards call in, and then maybe we could replace Twitter now that we know that it's obsolete?
0: No, absolutely. That is for me, the, the the primary goal of mine is to lend all of my weight and all of my influence and all of my audience and only to platforms that are devoted to values of free speech and free discourse, which is why I write on Substack. I publish video reports on Rumble and I do podcasts on Callin. exactly because I want to lead as much of my audience and lend as much of my voice as possible to those platforms that are devoted to developing free speech alternatives. The problem is you don't want to unilaterally disarm. And unfortunately, Facebook and YouTube and Twitter still are the most influential platforms. I mean, Facebook and YouTube by sheer numbers and Twitter by virtue of the fact that it's where most political and media elites not just in the US but around the world gather to talk to one another and exchange information. And so I kind of use a dual use tactic. You know, I want to build up these free speech alternatives while at the same time exploiting those other platforms as much as possible. And, you know, to me, the radicalizing event that i neglected to mention when I was going through the kind of history of how much censorship has grown was the pre-election censorship by Twitter and Facebook of reporting about the under-Biden emails, specifically what they reflected about Joe Biden and his history in Ukraine and China. Because if we're now at the point where these social media monopolies are being used to suppress accurate and relevant reporting about leading presidential candidates that Silicon Valley supports, it's hard to overstate what a menacing regime of censorship we've now permitted to take root. So... You are right. Um, I, I envy you for being on a platform I call in, which is designed to have much more substantive discourse. I feel like for myself as a journalist and, you know, a political commentator that I don't have the luxury to just ignore the platforms that millions of people are using. I feel like that would be doing a favor for my adversaries and those who are devoted to agendas that I find um, menacing. But I absolutely do hope that uh these other platforms will continue to grow um johnny thank you so much that was those were great questions um and i really appreciate your participation um i just want to move on to the next caller uh hashtag no war go ahead
2: good day glenn hey man um just to push back slightly on you know what you said your changes after having kids and i just think for most parents who are really involved in their kids' lives like you, and especially the conservatives that are pushing these these things that you're talking about and calling people groomers and, and limiting talking about uh, gender and sexual – gender identity and sexual orientation in school, um, you know, part of – to me, one of the most important parts of education is, is uh, exposure to different ideas and different thoughts and and i think that's why i would i would err a little more towards pre-children glenn and post-children glenn just because you know I, I think that that's such an important part of of growing up and you know even growing up as an adult um is being exposed to different different ways of thinking or different ideas and no for so, sure i told
0: I, I totally agree but i think and to me, this is kind of the reasonable middle ground is in order to be in order to be exposed to different ideas in a way that's valuable, you need to have the capacity, the faculties to kind of assess what it is you're hearing. There's certain children at certain, you know, all children at certain ages, whatever that age is, four, six, eight, whatever it is, don't have that capacity. They, they assume that what they're hearing from authority figures like a teacher or whatever is true by virtue of the fact that the authority figure is telling them that they don't they haven't yet developed the faculties of critical reasoning. And I think that's the issue is that, you know, I think when you're talking about high school students who are 16, you know, the concern that they're going to hear things that might corrupt them is not very valid. But when you're talking about five year olds or seven year olds, um, you know, I think it it's a lot more a lot more reasonable
2: the only thing I'd say to that is that's the value of parents being involved in their kids' lives at that age and, and to, to buttress their values at home, but allowing them to hear maybe different types of things in school. But I want to talk more about the Twitter stuff and, sure. and whatnot. Um, so, you know, I was listening keenly to your monologue, and I was glad you wrapped it in at the end. And... Uh, and said, you know, you have you're you're a little skeptical about whether, you know, the wealthiest individual in the world is going to actually push for free speech. And you you brought up really valid points. And I think that's a really important aspect of, of looking at this Elon Musk thing. You know, I think he, he if he does if he is granted control of this company and, and is allowed to buy it out and take it over, I think you know some things like, you know, Donald Trump will be reinstated, I would guess, and. And marginal things like that, but what about like Scott Ritter, who's you know been been banned off of Twitter twice in the last in the last week, and and uh, another gentleman whose name I can't think of, um, who's also pushing a you know a different narrative than what uh, is being told by the mainstream media. Um, you know, are people like that going to be part of Elon's push for? more free speech I, I just don't see it one has a one has any oligarch and savior of of of, uh, of free speech or anything like that they they buy so, so let me
0: let, let me let me just interrupt there um I, I totally agree with you you know all skepticism when we're talking about the world's richest people they don't usually become the world's richest people by being revolutionaries at war with power centers sometimes they The one thing that impressed me um, that gave me more kind of faith than I might have had previously is that early on in the war, in the in the Russian U.S. war, uh, the Russian. It's actually the Russian U.S. war, but let's call it the Russian Ukraine war. Um, There was pressure on Elon Musk when he was talking about providing Starlink to Ukraine, that he used Starlink to block Russian news sources. And he said... I wouldn't even do that at gunpoint, and this was at a time I think it was like the first week in March. You remember the second week in the war when people were petrified to dissent. Even people who are generally accustomed to doing it were back on their heels. The you know it was it was kind of like it reminded me of like the week after the George George Floyd killing when you know even kind of dissidents were either quiet or 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 meek, and he came out and said, "I'm not going to block." Russian news sources, um, or any news sources, I'm not going to be in the propaganda game. Again, it could have been cynical, could be branding, could be self-promotion, but the fact that he was willing to say that at the most difficult time gave me some faith, not blind faith, but some.
2: That's fair. That's fair. And, and I agree with you on, on all those points. He, um, but you know, it's just, to buttress the point you made with Johnny, Twitter is is the public square right now for journal like a journalist like you cannot not be on Twitter. I mean it would it would completely marginalize your platform as a journalist with the impact that you have. And and like even like, like Twitch, a streaming service that a lot of people use, they're banning people for talking differently about the Ukraine stuff. Like it's all it's all it's all really interesting. I just want to throw that out there. Like Caleb Mopin is still labeled as Russian state media. He doesn't work for Archie anymore and still has that, uh, label below his name when he tweets out, uh, things. And, and the last thing I wanted to throw out there to just, uh, kind of throw this to you and see if you have anything to say. And then, uh, there are 33 colors still. Um, you know, there was the, uh, the video clip by your former employer that was released, you know, two, three weeks ago and all the White House press corps asking all their questions, uh, you know, pushing for war. And the only person who asked any question about pushing for peace was Ryan Grimm. And I have my, you know, I just said from a lot of Ryan Grimm's views, but that was really powerful and appreciated from somebody with my perspective. Um, The thing I want to say about it is, I think it's kind of amazing that we're as out of this war as we are like you said you know it is the u.s russia war but but i think a lot of other presidents would have had us further in here and i don't like i don't like giving biden credit on almost anything i think he's a terrible president i didn't vote for him and i'm proud of that um i didn't vote for trump either and i'm proud of that as well but um i think it's amazing that he's kept us at least this far out when there's all these invitations from all the media to push us into the war, and I just wondered what you thought about that, and that he got us out of Afghanistan when there was so much media pressure for him to uh, keep us in Afghanistan, and what you think about giving Biden mild praise for for that, and I'll uh, I'll drop down.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I don't, I feel like it's a kind of a low bar to. Expect a president not to get the U.S. involved in a direct hot war in his first year in office with the world's largest nuclear-armed power, right? Like we went through the entire Cold War, decades of it, without directly engaging Russia militarily due to fear of nuclear escalation. So yes, I'm glad that Biden didn't do that. Um, And and you know, I don't want to be too glib about it. I mean, there were calls. in in lots of elite places for him to do so. Um, You know, I give Obama some credit as well that he resisted many times getting the US into situations that would have directly confronted Moscow, including refusing to flood Ukraine with lethal arms or confront them in Syria as bipartisan Washington demanded that he did. Just like I give Trump credit for being one of the first presidents in the first president many uh, administrations Depending on how you count, not to get the U.S. into a new conflict. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that Biden has handled the situation in Ukraine relatively responsibly compared to how other presidents might have. But I'm also increasingly concerned that he is um, each week that goes by, uh, getting more and more, 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 getting the U.S. more and more involved, sending more and more aggressive weapons, sending the kinds of weapons at the beginning of the war we said we wouldn't send because they're too provocative. I think political pressure in Washington is mounting for him to do more. Um, and I think his resistance each day is is becoming less. Um, so, you know, kind of mixed. I'm, I'm glad that there are no U.S. troops, at least like uniformed U.S. troops deployed to Ukrainian soil fighting the Russian army directly. But we are now in a full scale full-fledged proxy war with Russia and Ukraine in every sense of that word. Um, and I don't think we should underestimate the dangers of that either. Um, all right. Let me go to the next caller. Uh, Gregory, go ahead and unmute yourself.
3: Hey, Glenn. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Sure. Uh, well, Boy, it kind of went everywhere real quick here. Uh, so on the Elon thing, I, I, you know, absolutely don't think Elon's going to run the uh, Twitter. So, Who's he going to find then who is an absolute free speech person to run Twitter? I mean, that's where it's going to come down to. Um, I, I saw just, you know, the left's going crazy on the idea of him taking over Twitter. Um, and, and he everything he's called for, like the edit button and stuff, they're like, well, politicians. But it seems to me like you could take the politicians and give them a different check mark, like, say, the red. So, you know, they're a politician. And then their tweets couldn't be altered until like, let's say when they finally get out of office, then their new tweets after office would be allowed to be altered. But I mean, everybody's going off about that. He wants to change the entire way of the operation of the, uh, the system, but you know, it definitely needs to be updated. It's, it's not the greatest platform when it comes to user, you know, uh, being user friendly.
0: No, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, and I think, uh, You know, I think that if you have a single owner, which is what he intends to do, as he says, at least, buy all of Twitter and take it private, instilling into the DNA of the company a free speech ethos, presumably the person who you hire to run it would understand that his mission or her mission was to uphold that ethos. I think one of the things that has happened this is something I learned. I'll just share with you quickly. A little anecdote is, you know, before I knew any billionaires, I had kind of a caricatured uh, view of, of what they were like and who they were. And, you know, starting around the time of the Snowden reporting, I obviously worked with Pierre Omidyar, but also others since then as well. And what you learn is billionaires are like everybody else. They just have insane amounts of money, sometimes because they're really smart, sometimes because they're very mediocre and got lucky sometimes because they're innovative, sometimes because they're banal, they're just the whole range. And what they are though, no matter what, is human beings, which means they're social and political animals who have all the same impulses that normal human beings have about not wanting to be ostracized from society, not wanting to be demonized, not wanting to be accused widely of having blood on their hands. And a lot of the reason that Silicon Valley executives who began with these kind of libertarian ideas about free speech on the internet, backtracked and began censoring was because societal pressure demanded it of, of them. They didn't want to go through life hearing the thing that you created is causing genocide. The thing that you're creating is enabling a bloody coup against American democracy. If you don't censor, this blood is going to be on your hands. Those things are effective. So if you have a funder who says, no, your mission is to uphold free speech, I think you can embolden a person like that, especially given that there's at least a substantial minority, if not a majority of people who support that vision to actually implement it. But what you need is that kind of, you know, permission from somebody who has the level of control that Elon Musk would have if he does actually buy Twitter outright.
3: So if he creates a position that's the, uh, let's say this uh, uh, chief free speech officer, would you take the job?
0: I mean, I'm not really interested in a corporate job, but if I, were ever, if I were ever to consider taking a corporate job, I guess it would be one that would charge me with restoring free speech to social media. That's pretty much the only one I could ever imagine even remotely con- contemplating. Yeah, I kind of thought of you about
3: that idea about this job. It would kind of be the perfect fit for you. Uh, Okay, so anyway, real quick, though, back to Biden. Um, The State Department and CIA are pushing like crazy. I mean, they want to put us into this war. I just hope he's got the right people to help him resist that. Um, I sit there and still look at Syria. We do have troops there. Can anyone really tell us exactly what our troops are doing in Syria And it just makes me fearful that before long, we're going to have troops in Ukraine. And so we have
0: we have we have military and intelligence officials in Ukraine on the ground. Don't have any doubt about that. There was a French reporter who recently came back from Ukraine who basically said the Americans are running the war. Publicly confirmed information already shows that we provide the targeting information to the Ukrainians about where their missiles should go. We provide their troop movement uh, advice. We are training and have for many years been training their military and intelligence units. That's, you know, the U.S. involvement in, in Ukraine didn't begin on January 24th, 2022. It began prior to 2014 when the U.S. played a major role in the change of government in Ukraine. So the only thing that we don't have are actual uniform battalions on the ground, combat units on the ground directly engaging the Russians militarily. We have everything short of that, though. And a lot of risk and a lot of danger and a lot of provocations are possible even without putting American troops on the ground.
3: Okay, and then one last thing. Do you think, though, if they do allow Finland and Sweden to join NATO, is that just going to blow this thing up, you know, 10 times worse?
0: I mean, if you believe, as I believe, in part because... Scholars across the spectrum and senior U.S. officials, including the current head of the CIA, have been saying for two decades, if you believe, as I believe because they've been saying it, that NATO expansion is genuinely threatening to Moscow and not just genuinely, but validly threatening to Moscow. It stands to reason, I think, that especially now, expanding NATO further to include more and more neighbors of Russia is going to be provocative and is gonna make things much more volatile and dangerous. And this is the part that disturbs me the most. I'm not saying the U.S. has the power to foster an end to the war, but I also don't see any U.S. efforts to foster an end to the war diplomatically or in any other way, I, I, I see the opposite. I see the desire to prolong the war. And when I said that in the second week, that that seemed to be the U.S. goal, I think I hate trended for like 36 hours. But I think that events have subsequently vindicated that fact. And U.S. officials have kind of openly said that they expect this war to go on, not for months, but for years in a way that would not happen without U.S. support. So if you ask me what bothers me the most about U.S. actions with regard to this war, it seems to be that everything it does is designed to provoke Russia more and to prolong the war, sacrificing Ukraine and Ukrainians along the way. And very little to nothing is being done in order to try and end the war through diplomacy or any other kind of agreement. Thanks very much for that call. Uh, Next up is Eric. Go ahead, Eric. Eric, are you there? If you're there, you have to unmute yourself. There you go. You seem unmuted, but we're not able to hear you. Maybe mute yourself and unmute yourself. See if that works. Just give you a few seconds to figure out why we might not be hearing you. Up, oh, you dropped off. So the next person is uh, James. Go ahead, James.
4: Hi, Glenn. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Hi. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for doing this. I am a big sure. fan of your work for many nurse. Uh, yeah, going to the Elon uh, Twitter buyout thing, I do share your skepticism that, like, ultimately, whether or not Elon is actually genuine in his efforts to, you know, try to reform free speech on Twitter or if he's even capable of, because you have to remember, you know, even if he does, you know, quote, out Twitter, whether or not the powers that be will even allow it, you know, it's still going to be inhabited by your typical, you know, Silicon Valley techite type who generally seems to be very much in favor of, you know, authoritarian censorship in favor of whatever the favored narrative of the day seems to be. So I'm also just wondering, from like, what's your take? Like, even if Elon is able to, you know, buy out Twitter to in a way to, you know, possibly reform it, you know, given the reaction from, you know, so-called credential journalists, blue check marks, politicians, even, you know, I think some Saudi prince weighed in on this too, like like it doesn't seem to me that they're going to let it go without a fight like like it would it seems to me that like even if there's a fiduciary duty for Twitter to you know accept Elon's offer which is you know paying more per share than what it's currently valued at right now and they would have a fiduciary duty to you know very much favor the offer, because it you know, benefits the stockholders, it, it seemed to me that they would rather burn the whole thing down rather than you know, let it go, because it's not about the money. It's about the ability to control information, and it's about the ability to control narratives and shape per- public perception in a way that favors the current establishment. Is that your take? Yeah, no, I,
0: I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think you know, it's interesting. I think, well, first of all, presumably, if you're on the board of Twitter and you're looking at this offer and you vote against it you can assume there's going to be an avalanche of lawsuits from people who would have made a ton of money had you accepted it accusing you of violating their fiduciary duty to maximize your value twitter's going to have good arguments you know elon musk taking over and implementing these policies would destroy twitter over the long term but either way it's 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 not something that you're just going to reject lightly i mean obviously Elon Musk has experience in these kind of transactions. They purposely structured it to make it difficult, uh, to put a lot of pressure on the board to accept it. So it's not going to be easy. But the one thing I would say is, you know, I, I thought about this a lot. I thought about this a lot when I was doing the Snowden reporting and was in conflict with several powerful governments around the world. Thought about it more when I did the 18 months of investigative exposés here in Brazil, where we became directly pretty much at war with the Brazilian government. I thought a lot about what it means for to say that someone or a group has, or an entity has power. We talk a lot about that. Like, these are powerful factions. This, that you know, people talk about speak truth to power. And we don't talk very much about what does that mean? Like when we say something, someone is powerful. You know, I guess it can mean they're rich, right? Like obviously having wealth, on the level of Elon Musk gives you a certain form of power, but there's a lot of other forms of power. And I would say a lot of greater forms of power than just personal wealth. For me, what power, what I've come to understand power to mean is the ability to reward people when they serve your will or serve your interests. And conversely, the ability to punish people for impeding your will or impeding your interests, That to me is what power is. And that's what I was trying to get at before is, it's easy to think about Elon Musk as like this incredibly powerful, virtually ubiquitous figure, you know, omnipotent figure. He's the world's richest man. You know, he has two major companies. He's worth almost $300 billion in in net worth, all of that. It's very easy to think of him as powerful and he does definitely wield some degree of power. But when you look at the, well, the, the, the power centers that benefit from the censorship regime that he's at least claiming or threatening to unroot, that power is vastly greater. I mean, obviously, you know, governments could, can punish rich people, can impose all kinds of reprisals against rich people, have done so many times in the past. There's just no way that he's going to be able to waltz in and grab something as potent as Twitter and turn it into a free for all without a gigantic clash of, of, of and war. And whether he's really willing to engage in that and to confront that, this prolonged protracted attack on him that would absolutely be unleashed is something that I doubt, even if his intentions right this moment are, are good. I mean, is he really willing to risk His electric car business, his sports, his his space exploration, his standing in the society, his ability to have contracts with the U.S. government and the security state all over Twitter, maybe, but I'll believe that when I see it.
4: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like they're already doing reprisals against him as we speak. I mean, like you know, the usual plethora of you know the blue check marks calling him racist, sexist, whatever, right? But then I think it was also recently announced. You know, the SEC just suddenly happened to announce some investigations in his Tesla company for labor violations, which you know may be true, but this the timing really makes you raise questions about you know whether or not that's actually genuine or not, right? So yeah, that's my take too. I don't think they're gonna let go of Twitter willingly. When I say day, you know, the powers that be and yeah, I think the way you frame power as the ability to incentivize or punish is a very good way of looking at things. And if you look at it that way, the cards are definitely against Elon. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. That's a
0: definition I like I said I developed over time from personal experience. Thank you, James. That was those are some great questions. Um and really appreciate your participation. Next up is Steven. Go ahead and unmute yourself.
5: Hey Glenn. I was just thinking about uh, all the comedians who are gonna be making fun of Elon Musk, you know, invading Twitter like <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll see if that comes to uh, comes to bear. Um, so I wanted to kind of table the efficacy and intentions of Elon Musk for a moment. Uh, you know, whether it's truly a quixotic free speech project he has in mind. Um, I was actually kind of wondering about I, I think my question is about power. Uh, do you think that the underlying free uh, premise of free speech and discourse is kind of missing the mark with regards to the exercise of power? So free speech has kind of been the norm for decades and it hasn't provided redress of grievances in that period, in my mind, uh, and that's kind of substantiated in the 2014 Princeton study looking at public policy. Uh, and you were talking about a frog in a pot earlier, and I think I see kind of a gradual abrogation of authority in the US government in alignment with private interests and, and power centers in the US. So of course, I'm talking about like manufacturing consistent, uh, constituencies under NAFTA, um, infrastructure in Flint, homeowners in 2008, uh, Medicare and public health policy during COVID, and now, of course, we have Ukraine. So like ultimately, my sense is not that there's an effective government moderating these issues with good faith in accordance with kind of like a, a federal republic. Uh, if Elon Musk were too magically able to be able to rewind the clock uh, for free speech back to 2015, uh, w- what kind of solvency do you see that providing? Aside from, of course, the intrinsic value of free speech?
0: Yeah, I see. Well, yeah, I I do see intrinsic value in free speech, um, just in the sort of truth seeking process. But I also see it as an important tactic. And I do not think free speech is sufficient to enable meaningful social change. But I think it's necessary. I think the chances of meaningful social change without free speech is zero With free speech, it's something more than zero, depending on all variety of other variables. So if you were to say to me, let's go back to 2015, put Elon Musk in charge, like the best version of Elon Musk in charge of Twitter, or maybe even Facebook, and you have like kind of a free speech ethos on these social media platforms instead of an increasingly restrictive and, and propagandistic one that relies on censorship to shield official propaganda from challenge? What? How would the society be improved? That's a very difficult fact, you know, counterfactual for me to answer. What I can tell you is, and this is part of what always bothers me the most about the censorship debate, is the people who, and again, no one says I'm in favor of censorship. It's, like I said, it's like saying I'm in, fa- I'm in favor of, of torture. No one wants to say that even though people are. But the people who clearly believe in the, 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 justness and the benefits of whatever you want to call it, content moderation or whatever, they seem to think that the reason it's a good thing is because marginalized people need the protection that censorship provides because in a realm of free speech, it's the marginalized who suffer. And to me, the exact opposite is true for such basic and obvious reasons. It's all censorship is always a tool of the powerful designed to suppress the marginalized and prevent the marginalized from gaining a foothold into greater power. The very first time I ever did reporting on big tech censorship was in 2016, when I reported on how Facebook was receiving lists from the Israeli government of Palestinian activists and journalists that the Israeli government had deemed to be guilty of inciting violence or terrorism, by which the Israeli government means were harshly critical of of Israel. And in 98% of the cases, or 99% of the cases at that time, at least, Facebook was accepting those lists and was banning all of the Palestinian journalists and activists, which the Israeli government had identified as worthy of uh, banning. And the reason is not because Facebook has some strong belief in the Israeli side of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm sure some executives within Facebook do. But Facebook itself, that wasn't what was motivating it. It was that Israel is a more powerful actor than Palestine or Palestinians on all levels. And censorship will always be exercised on behalf of the most powerful faction, which is why I was saying earlier, one of the most important things that people overlook is that Facebook and Twitter and Google are not censoring... Randomly, they're censoring in alignment with U.S. government policy or with what the Chinese demand or whoever wields the greatest power over the business interests of these companies. So the idea that marginalized people are going to benefit from a censorship regime administered by billionaires linked to the state is preposterous to me. Free speech and, and free discourse is what dissident groups and marginalized groups need in order to gain a foothold. So if if what you're saying is just free speech in and of itself doesn't guarantee meaningful social change, I agree completely. But yes. I also think it's a prerequisite if we're going to have that.
5: Yeah. Necessary but insufficient. I, I get it. And I agree with that framework. Uh, the challenge I see is, you know, like how we can actually, like if there's hidden agendas here and we don't actually have the ability to redress the government to fix those things, um, then yeah, I, com- I agree. It's completely insufficient and we need to... You know, culturally, kind of understand what those real issues are to actually change that. And I guess that's yeah. that what I was.
0: No, no, I, I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think the, the point you raise is a really important one, and I'm glad you raised it, which is that free speech gets us to a certain place, but it's not this kind of panacea to fix everything. It's just for me, it's, it's, it's the first step without which nothing else valuable or meaningful is possible. Uh, thanks very much for that. Uh, next up is Chris.
6: There it is. Hi, Glenn. Uh, thanks for having me on. Can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. Okay. Um, I'm a big fan of yours uh, since Citizen Four. I'm a Substack supporter, and I consider you a, really a central hero of free speech. So Thank you. Um, it's a great thrill to talk to you. Um, earlier today, just a little while ago, Joe Hoft on the uh, Gateway Pundit, had an article that was talking about this uh, Saudi billionaire Talal Alawid, who owns apparently five percent of uh, Twitter's stock, and he uh, has publicly on Twitter rejected um, Elon Musk's offer. Uh, and since he only owns five percent, I'm not sure what that means, but it sent the stock tumbling. And Joe Hoff asked the question, "Why would Twitter want a Sa- uh, Saudi control of this uh, American company?" And I you know, I think that was a just a, a rhetorical question, but um, made me think that uh, uh, people love to call uh, someone fascist if they don't like their opinions of things. But the original definition of fascism was a partnership between the state and industry that would be beneficial to both um, under Mussolini. And I think that uh, we see a lot of that these days. And uh, given Twitter's role in the Arab Spring, and Twitter's recent history in uh, censorship, do you think it's possible Twitter could be involved in a fascistic relationship with various governments? You just alluded to it with China, um, and that, and if so, for what ulterior motives are they are they getting you know payment from these governments, or why would they be doing that? Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think that first of all, you're absolutely right that the word fascist has zero fixed meaning beyond. Someone who's just disliked for whatever reason. Um, I guess it kind of means somebody on the right politically, even though many times, you know, I like I was saying before, if you go out and advocate free speech, you will be called a fascist. It's one of the great ironies. Right. Um, but when one of the textbook definitions, and and this has been something that's been disturbing me for quite some time, is a union between state and corporate power. Exactly as you said. Right. One of the big revelations of the Snowden reporting was. Not what people remember, which is that the NSA was invading the privacy of, you know, hundreds of millions of of Americans and people around the world. Obviously, that was a major revelation. It was the way in which they were doing so in complete conjunction with major Silicon Valley companies, basically a union between government and corporate power. You see this union of government and corporate power in every realm. When the U.S. fights wars, it now relies on private contractors the, the distinction between the private and the public sector is almost completely gone. Which as you yep. say is not really the definition of fascism, but one of the crucial hallmarks of it. And I absolutely this is, you know, this is what I think is the most overlooked part of the, the debate about about Silicon Valley censorship is so often the reason Silicon Valley censors is because governments demand that they do so. And then you say, well why do they care about what governments want? And the reason is, is because governments are crucial to providing all kinds of benefits to these companies and allowing these companies to operate freely.
6: Exactly. So if you want to
0: enter the Chinese market, you want to enter the Indian market, you want to enter and stay in good favor with the United States, you need to control and censor information on the, uh, the way that those officials of those governments want. And that's the answer.
6: Exactly. And a lot of these tech billionaires get terrific, uh, benefit back if they do the right thing that the government wants. Uh, Julian Assange wrote about it uh, in uh, his book, When Google Met WikiLeaks. And, and he talks about the, the back and forth and that he made a call uh, in one instance to uh, try and reach Hillary Clinton at the State House, And he kept getting bumped up, up and up the ladder and kept thinking that eventually they'd get, uh, they'd get rejected. And then he gets a call back from someone who worked for Google and he was thinking, I called the State Department. How on earth am I am I getting a call back from someone at Google? Uh, but there were these there were these links. Um, so it's it's really interesting and and very disturbing as well. Um, and you see the reach it has when they talk about when you remember things like the Arab Spring. Um, one other uh, comment in in the past couple of years with um, with the whole COVID debacle. Um, We've seen, I've seen many times, I'm also a follower of uh, Alex Berenson, who's on uh, Substack, and uh, uh, many times when the government would make certain statements, and a year later, things would change about various things, whether it was their pronouncements on the efficacy of the vaccines or masks or whatever, and then you'd see a statement that you thought, wait a minute, that's exactly the opposite of what they said a year or 18 months ago, isn't it? And you'd find yourself feeling like you've been gaslit, and it reminded me, you were talking earlier about um, um, Orwell, and uh, in uh, one of Orwell's books, Animal Farm, they the, had a statement, four legs good, two legs bad, written on the side of the barn, and once the the pigs who were in the leadership um, learned how to walk on two legs, all of a sudden, the animals looked up one day, and it said four legs good, two legs better, and they couldn't remember, it used to say something different, but they couldn't remember. I've had that feeling um, many times throughout the whole uh, COVID debacle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you for that comment. To try and take one more, but uh, just a- along those lines, if in March of 2020 you had gone on YouTube and you had said, "I think everybody should wear cloth masks as protection against COVID," you would have been guilty of spreading disinformation because the message that you were disseminating was directly contrary to the one the World Health Organization, and Dr. Fauci were disseminating. If three months later, you had gone on YouTube and said, I don't think you should wear cloth masks, which had been their message three months earlier, you would definitely have been banned because by that point, they had done a 180 and reversed themselves and were issuing the exact opposite edict. And that is what is so disturbing, is whatever pronouncements are issued from institutions of authority or figures of authority not only become the thing on which we're supposed to rely, but set the limits of what we're permitted to say, which is another way of saying we are not permitted to challenge or question their pronouncements on the Internet, even though a core purpose of the Internet was supposed to be to do exactly that. Um, I'm going to have to end in, after this call because I have my next show, which I co-host with Q Anthony. I hope you'll... Uh, regularly attend that. It's always at the same time, which is Thursday um, at 4.30 p.m. I also noticed that one of my good friends and one of the smartest and best commentators in all of media is president in my room. I'm honored to have her, Brianna Joy Gray. And uh, she's on call in. And all I can tell you is if you're interested in hearing a very smart leftist, she used to be the press secretary to Bernie Sanders. And no matter where you are in the political spectrum, you should always be looking for the smartest proponents of every ideology so that you're exposing yourself to the best possible arguments, even the ones that you think you're not open to agreeing with. Um, Definitely follow her on Twitter, listen to her show on Colin. She has her own show as well. Um, I can't recommend her highly enough. She talks to everybody across the spectrum with respect, but also with spirited debate. So um, look out for Brianna if you haven't uh, already become familiar with her okay the next and last caller and i apologize to all the people in the queue that i didn't get to um i will try next time uh to do so is andrew go ahead andrew
7: hey glenn can you hear me i can hear you right on yeah um i guess my really really quick take on the musk twitter situation is that I I feel similarly skeptical, similar amounts of small glimmers of hope, and I guess I just figure I'll support the the move because, really, at this point, Twitter is a is a dumpster fire. It's not going to get any better on its current trajectory. So, uh, I I guess I would nominally support it, although I guess it doesn't really make too much difference what I personally say. But it seems like. With Twitter being so openly censorious, I mean, removing somebody like Scott Ritter, who seems like somebody who would be sort of a perfect expert to analyze the Ukraine situation. For those who uh, don't know, the-
0: Scott. For those who don't know, Scott Ritter was an actual weapons inspector for the UN and for the U.S. government, who was one of the very few people prior to the Iraq War warning vehemently that Saddam Hussein did not have an active weapons of mass destruction program. People trying to demean him because he subsequently had uh, entanglements with the criminal law over speaking to minors over the Internet, which definitely is a mark against his character, but nonetheless does not remove him from being a very valuable and informed voice. He's been a voice of dissent on the war in Ukraine and has been repeatedly banned from social media, which gives you an indication of how even credentials and deep knowledge do not immunize you from being silenced if you're on the wrong side of the debate.
7: Yeah, I guess I guess I was just um uh yeah, I, I with with no comment on his other um foibles or other personal um kind of potentially disgusting things, he was a UN weapons inspector and also a marine, you know, US Marine Corps intelligence officer. So it seems disturbing at this point that they'd be banning someone like that. You would um, think so. Yeah. You would think it would disturb more people for sure. Um So, I guess with regards to the Twitter situation, assuming it doesn 't go the right way, are platforms like Colin and Rumble are they hardened against the removal of web service providers um like Amazon web service provider or Amazon Web Services is now i think eighty five plus or or even ninety percent of the at least in the west the uh, the hosting for for websites and I think they were kind of instrumental in removing Parler or uh, if i 'm not totally mistaken and then my other really quick question was beyond the realm of Twitter, freedom of speech. What about the freedom of speech or sovereignty for other nations? We just saw Imran Khan uh, removed by a seemingly kind of elite maneuver of a no confidence vote. We saw AMLO uh, release another statement saying he didn't accept Russia's invasion, uh, which I, I kind of read as like he was under more U.S. pressure. And what's your worry, you know, with elections swiftly upcoming in Brazil um brazil being a member of the BRICS. what what's your just thoughts in general on uh the lengths that the u.s is able and willing to go um with secondary sanctions with coups etc um also in the context of the fact that it seems like maybe the dollar and the euro are slipping in their hegemony i wouldn't say they're weak yet but there's question about their dominance now
0: yeah um there's a lot there so uh let me just quickly say that um on the question of uh, Pakistan, I mean, when you have a, a leader of a major country, and Pakistan's a nuclear on power, the fifth most populous country in the world, that has a rapid, unexpected change of government, and the leader saying that it was orchestrated by the United States and the CIA, we shouldn't reflexively believe that that happened, absent evidence, but we should certainly not reflexively disbelieve it given how often it's been true and not in the distant past, but in the very recent past. Um, And it is notable that Pakistan was part of the group of countries refusing to support a sanctions regime against Russia. They abstained from several key UN votes um, and have otherwise been obviously uh, declaring their independence from U.S. hegemony like India has as well and lots of other countries, including Mexico. And if you don't think that the United States uses what is still its status as the most powerful and richest country on the planet to punish the countries that refuse to adhere to its most important geopolitical decrees, which includes its demand that everyone supports it when it comes to Ukraine and Russia, you're living in a fantasy world. Um, it doesn't mean, I think, that the CIA orchestrated... Uh, Khan's removal as uh, as president of Pakistan, but I'm certainly open to the possibility that they played a role given that so many times, including in Brazil, where you mentioned in many other countries, when there's been a change of government and the, the person deposed claims that the CIA was responsible and the CIA denies it and all the savvy Western journalists mock it as a conspiracy theory, it takes a year or three years or six years for the evidence to emerge that in fact the CIA was heavily involved. Um, On Brazil, I think it's a really interesting dynamic that, in general, it's almost always a rule that the U.S. government prefers the further right-wing candidate than the further left-wing candidate in Brazil. I think given how Bolsonaro is perceived in the West and the fact that Lula has become a much more moderate figure um, than he was perceived as being before, he just chose as his vice president this— I guess you could call him like a kind of Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan sort of figure, like center-right, austerity advocating, beloved by the banking sector and the inter- the the market of international capital, Geraldo Alckmin, who had been an enemy of Lula and PT for 20 years. They spent the last two decades calling him the fascist and a racist um, and everything else they could think of. But now they're unified in a way of signaling to the international community that a Lula presidency will restabilize Brazil, kind of bring it back into the standard Western expectations of how Brazil functions. I think, if anything, the U.S. government clearly prefers, especially under Biden, um, a Lula victory to a Bolsonaro victory. How much that means they're going to be involved or how much influence they're going to wield, I really don't know. Polls over the last six months have shown Lula far ahead, um, but they're starting to tighten a lot. Uh, I think people are forgetting about COVID, which Bolsonaro got blamed for. The economy is starting to stabilize. I think people are going to be reminded with a lot of money poured into it about all the reasons why they had turned against Lula's Workers' Party. And it's going to be a lot closer of an election than a lot of people are expecting. Um, So with that, I actually do have another podcast I have to run to. It's kind of a marathon call-in day for me. Um, I hope as many of you as, as are inclined to come to Uh, The room that I have with Q Anthony that we're just about to start, we're going to cover a couple of similar topics so with different perspectives because he always has a different perspective. But also talk about this news outlet, the so-called Kiev Independent, and the question of who funds it and where it came from and how it has become kind of the preferred celebrity voice um, on the war in Ukraine when it comes to the West. Uh, So there'll definitely be interesting parts of that discussion as well. If you're already sick of me and have had enough of me after 90 minutes, I certainly understand that as well. Um, but like I said, we're going to try very hard to pick a regular date and time where the Glenn Greenwald podcast is going to be broadcast regularly so you have a, a reliable expected time each week. So I hope to notify all of you soon of that. And once again, thank you very much to everybody who participated. It was in excess of a thousand people in the room, everybody who was in the queue and didn't get a chance to talk, but everyone who asked questions as well, you guys are crucial to the ability to have a great podcast. So thank you to everybody. Um, I hope you all have a great week and I will see you next week at what I hope will be our regular time. Thanks very much.